Something called that they they term everyday sadism. So not your Sunday sadism. It's your everyday sadism. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who eat them. In this week's episode, we celebrate Halloween and discuss the frightful state of gender bias in science. Stay with us, if you dare. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 17. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Happy Halloween week, Daniel. Ghost noises. (laughs) We need better sound effects. (laughs) Let's hire a Foley artist. Do you have your costume? Yeah, I was thinking about this. What would be a a cool lab-themed costume, like impending RO1 deadline, or I don't know what else. Uh, Dr. Aziz Sanjar, Nobel laureate in yep, chemistry. You could do that. Dan, I was uh, walking across campus today and realized I'd gone to get my afternoon cup of coffee. I was walking back to my office, and I was walking behind Nobel laureate Dr. Sanjar. And did any of it kind of waft toward you, any of the brilliance? You know, my heart actually started beating a little more quickly i kind of had this sort of <laughs> were you chasing a nobel laureate <laughs> why was your heart beating more I quickly know. i kind of had this sort of like fanboy reaction to it it wow. was really weird like a, like i saw a celebrity yeah. or something Did you get him to sign your chest you know i really wanted to ask him for a selfie but i resisted yeah because he doesn't love technology right <laughs> well i guarantee he has uh, performed his first through hundredth selfie of his life in the last two weeks I'm sure you're right we should get people to tweet us um good scary science costumes I'm thinking like committee member to whom you didn't bring donuts. <laughs> that'd be a pretty frightening one. Uh, that would that would be a pretty good one. Send us send us what you have, people. Yes. So Dan, we have a special Halloween beer this week. Yeah, we've been sitting on this one since I got back from my trip. Hopefully, yeah. it's still still good. Yeah. So you brought this one. I'm looking at the bottle. This one came from Portland, Maine. Yeah, I bought it in Massachusetts. Um, I was trying to get a local beer. I was in a hurry. I grabbed it. Uh, it's not local to Massachusetts, but it's local somewhere. Yeah, well, this one looks pretty scary, Dan. This is the Shipyard Little Horror of Hops. And it's got the, it's it's the hops, but it's kind of the Little Shop of Horrors plant, the Audrey plant. Yeah, the hops have some teeth. And this may be the first bottle label I've seen that actually has has blood. It has like cartoon blood drops dripping from That's not the... a cartoon. That's a, a actual <laughs> photograph of that hop plant. Yeah, I'm going to just turn this bottle around. It's Genetically kind of, modified. It's kind of freaking me out. But, but I tell you what's not freaking me out, the taste of this beer. Mm. It's good. And it is hoppy. I wouldn't say it's a horror, but but it is hoppy. They actually on their website they list the type of hops. I'm I'm hoping that more people do this so that I can start to identify the taste. It's got Bravo, Apollo, Centennial, and Cascade. It's a top. It's a top fermenting English yeast. I thought I tasted some uh, yeah some English yeast I in thought, there. Uh, I, I tasted middle fermenting, but no, no, it's top. That's right. Yeah, when you were naming those hops, I thought you were um, spelling out some words in in military. Jargon, Bravo, yeah, Charlie, yeah, Bravo, Charlie, <laughs> Cascade. So this beer is particularly appropriate that we're selling, celebrating Halloween because it is little horror of hops. But also, I found some research that should frighten you. Are you ready for this? Well, a lot of research frightens me. So uh, lay it on me, Dan. What do you got? <laughs> that's that's a fair point. So we know that that sweet tastes over the course of time 
are evolutionary selected and even little babies like sweet taste because usually it means it's food, it's not poison. Yeah, and actually, Dan, when my daughter was born, uh, a friend of mine who was a nurse, um, actually a pediatric nurse, told me that before they give babies a shot or something painful, they put a little bit of sugar water on their finger yep. and they yep. rub it on the baby's gums because it has natural, um, sort of natural pain relief properties too. Okay, so you just mentioned that you have an afternoon coffee. And right now we're drinking an IPA. Mm. Um, why is it that we are drinking these terribly bitter substances when a lot of times bitter is associated with toxins and that's why why they taste bad? You, didn't, you weren't born wanting those flavors, right? That's true. I feel like over time I've acquired more of a, a desire. Even if I think of my evolution of coffee drinking, started out with the sweeter drinks. Yep. Yeah, you put sugar in the coffee. Sugar and, kind of back, and the mocha or the whatever, whatever. And now I just like coffee with a little bit of milk, no sugar. Okay. Well, let me add in another layer of, of excitement here. So Okay. Your tastes expand. You start to acquire taste for these other things. And and you do it not just because it's food, but because it's social. Maybe you decided to drink coffee because you needed uh, a little stimulation. So it's the psychological and physiological effects of these flavors True. that you start to take on. So in the lab, if you give people sweet flavors, they will report, self-report, that their agreeableness increases and their intention to help people Interesting. increases. And their death anxiety goes down. Is that why they're called, why they're sweet, someone who's nice? It may be, may be related. If you give somebody a bitter taste experience in the lab, they are shown to elicit harsher moral judgments and interpersonal hostility. Uh, what are you saying, Dan? Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, I'm not <laughs> my, even done. <laughs> my morning and afternoon coffee, I'm getting a little self-conscious here. Yeah, so these, these researchers, uh, and this is published in the journal Appetite, which I think is, is pretty fascinating. I think it came out of Germany. Um, <laughs> They asked, can the habitual consumption of bitter flavors actually increase our hostility? What are you trying to say, Dan? <laughs> I'll kill you! <laughs> so they used Mechanical Turk and they asked people about their food preferences. Um, but then they have these, these questions that they can ask to identify um, kind of tests of malevolent behavior. And they call, they call them the dark triad, Machiavellianism. So you would answer the question, I manipulate others to get my way. Um, Check. Psychopathy. I tend to be callous and insensitive. Check. And narcissism. I tend to want others to people to pay attention to me. Triple crown. Triple crown. <laughs> so so they did this study and people reported their taste preferences. Um, and then they, they answered these questionnaires on the Machiavellianism. Um, also, something called that they, they term everyday sadism. So not your <laughs> Sunday sadism. It's your everyday sadism. Uh, trait aggression and, and other factors of personality. And they found that the preference for these bitter tastes are most strongly associated with everyday sadism and psychopathy. You know, everyday sadism is also um, a weekly magazine on my nightstand. <laughs> I believe you. Also, your best, your best band name I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. So uh, I'm very, very worried about us over the course of this. I mean, you could axe murder me at any minute. We're drinking such a hoppy beer. Not hoppy enough for me. <laughs> there's that hostility you know i do wonder dan you're the word guy and i made mention of this so is that where we get the personality adjectives bitter and sweet i, I bet you it does it goes back to the the choleric and the you remember the the four humors the phlegm the phlegmatic and the 
We'll have to look it up. Yeah. Yeah, but it's in there because sanguine is a, a type of mood and... Salty. Bitter. Yeah. Yeah. Salty. Be very salty. Fascinating. Dan, why are you so umame today? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I actually have something else I want to talk about. And this is a paper that uh, came across my my view. Actually, um, a friend of mine and a listener pointed this one out to me. Uh, and this is a recent study from, it seems like this is my favorite journal lately, uh, PNAS. Yep, the actual journal, not the... Yes, PNAS. Uh, okay. Yep, yep. And this this article has to do with, this is going to be a little meta today, if that's okay, but it deals with gender bias. Okay. Okay, but actually, it goes one step beyond gender bias. This article, what they wanted to know was, is there a gender bias in how people react to research on gender bias. <laughs> that was my mind blowing. Exactly, exactly. Okay, not, you're going to have to walk me through this. Okay, it's not quite as complicated as you think, okay? So, uh, the study is called Quality of Evidence Revealing Subtle Gender Biases in Science is in the Eye of the Beholder. Okay. Okay, and so, you know, really where they start out is there's really mounting evidence out there, mounting studies, mounting number of studies that indicate there's gender bias within the sciences, within the STEM fields. Yeah, and we've we've looked at that and talked about it a little bit uh, in some previous episodes. So I'm with you that that there appears to be an issue. Yeah, and there are articles that really try to get at this at different levels, at different stages, um, even of the training path. So whether it has to do with um, individuals in the undergraduate stage. Um, postgraduates, graduate students, um, early career faculty, tenure, um, all across the board, there seems to be this existing gender bias. And it's consistent bias. across those. Consistent across those, those periods of time. But one of, the, one of the studies that made a big splash um, a couple years ago um, was a paper by an author, Moss Rakusin. Okay, and so this was the paper, Dan, and we may have even mentioned it before where they sent out identical resumes to faculty at research institutions applying for a lab manager job. Right, okay. I remember this. The only difference was half of the faculty got an application with a female name, the other half an application with a male name, identical applications. They didn't douse one in cologne and one in perfume. <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. No Axe body spray. Hearts uh, over the eyes on the male application. <laughs> uh, nothing. Not that I know of. Just names. Just names. Okay, and so what they found was pretty interesting. Okay, so they asked people to, ask the faculty to rate these CVs for the competence, the hireability, and the degree to which they would be excited to mentor that person in their lab. Okay, so are you smart enough, and do I want to work with you? Exactly, and what they found was pretty staggering, and that was significantly across the board, faculty rated the male application or the application, the identical application with the male name higher than the one with the female name. So at this point, I think it's safe to say it's not because the font was different. It's not because it's purely their perception that was of how the, a man's resume with these features is different from yeah, a woman's resume. The only resume. difference was the name. Okay. okay. And we're, these weren't the same people reading the same resume. No, so this was a randomized, Different people, double blind, same resume, file. or exactly. Yeah, okay, gotcha. Exactly, and so, so the other thing, the other two things that were intriguing about this, first of all, there was no difference 
in whether the application was read by a male faculty member or female faculty member. Female faculty members were just as likely to rate the male name higher than the female name. So you can't blame men on this one, I guess, but yeah, you and can that say was, that it's systemic. Yeah, that was, a, that was a surprising finding, was female faculty just as likely to be biased towards the male name. Okay, and then the other piece was the starting salary. The faculty were asked what starting salary they would offer this person, and the female, the application with the female name was offered $26,500, and the male name, over thirty thousand, thirty thousand two hundred and thirty-eight dollars. Is that? I mean, only difference was the name. I I would change my name, I guess. If I'm a woman and I'm applying to these jobs, I would just change my name. Unbelievable. So so this study, as you might expect, made a pretty pretty big splash um, in the science community. So this really sets the table, Dan. The reason I spent some time talking about this was in the paper that I'm really going to talk about today. This more recent PNAS paper. What they did was they wanted to know how are these studies on gender bias, like the one I just described, how are these viewed among researchers, among faculty? All right, so what they did was they sent out the abstract for this paper, the one I just described to you, to men and women, okay? And they uh, they did a couple different things. First, they just sent it out to a random sampling of people in the population, all right? An equal, a roughly equal number of men and, and women, and found that men rated the research to be of lower quality and lower believability than females. Okay, so so pause here a second. We're sending out the result that that women are treated poorly and and given fewer opportunities and paid less. We're sending that to people, and they're reading that paper and saying. Okay, I either agree that this study was well done and I think the results are useful, or I don't really believe this, they made mistakes. Exactly. Okay, and so men are saying, no, 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 that can't be true. Yeah, so men evaluated the abstract. Is, of it, that. is it a big difference? So it was a moderate difference. They, they rated it a moderate difference. Okay, okay. so we're not Middle of the totally radio. boorish pigs. We're just mostly awful. Absolutely. Well, hold your judgment just for a minute, Dan. So then the next thing they did was they sent this out to faculty. Okay, and so they sent it out to a large, large group of faculty, roughly equal numbers of men and women, found the exact same thing, a moderate difference between how men faculty members rated this uh, research than women faculty okay, members. Okay, so you bring your own kind of implicit bias to any research you read, but in this case, that bias is indicating that, that the men are less likely to accept this finding. Yes. Now, but not really less likely. Right. Well, this is where it gets interesting. There are, there are some enlightened ones among us. There are, but this this might this might make you think a little differently about this, Dan. So what they did was they dug a little deeper into these faculty that were looking over the abstract to this uh, gender bias paper. Okay. All right. So what they did then was they separated them out into science or STEM faculty and humanities faculty. Okay. Right. So or non STEM. Yeah, right. Okay. So science faculty, non science faculty. When they did that, Dan. They're actually in the non-science group. There was no difference in how the male faculty members and the female faculty members viewed the abstract of the gender bias paper. That must imply that all of the difference came from the STEM faculty. Exactly. When they looked at the science faculty, there was a very large difference in how the male faculty viewed the paper as the female faculty. Now, the male faculty are reading this paper... 
And and the paper is specifically focused on how women are treated in science careers. No, so I want yeah, so I want to point out so they were they read over the abstract mm-hmm. to the study that I just described where the identical resumes were sent out, only changing the name. And But this is resume for a lab tech position. For a lab manager position. Okay. Yes. Lab manager position. Okay, so so now I'm I'm starting to understand here the people who are not feeling judged by this study <laughs> say, hey, that sounds like a great study. The people who are feeling judged by this study are trying to find something wrong. Could with be. It. Maybe the humanities people are like, oh, that sounds like something yeah, those evil scientists would yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> those jerks. Uh, could be. Could be. Um, so here's where, here's where it gets interesting, Dan, um, it, as if it's not interesting already. Okay. So what, what you could say, and this is actually a thought I had when I first started reading this paper, is as a scientist, you're trained to think critically just because a study comes out in a high-profile journal, maybe especially if a study comes out in a high-profile journal, you should question it, right? You should be critical, right? Yeah. We teach our students that all the time. Don't just believe everything Yeah, you because read. it's published doesn't make it true. Sure. So maybe one hypothesis is that men tend to be more critical in general, right, than women of articles. Maybe if you gave a non-gender bias article to men and women, the men would be more critical. Well, so here's what they did, Dan, and this is the third and final experiment they did. So they took the abstract. Gave everybody a bitter drink. <laughs> Maybe they had already had a few bitter drinks I that I hate morning. this article. It's terrible. Uh, that was one thing they didn't do was ask the uh, reviewers See, they don't know what if they, they were drank coffee drinkers. Morning. Yeah. That's true. Maybe more male STEM faculty members drink coffee. We will do the follow-up study. Okay, we're on it, people. All right, so here's here's the third thing they did. And that was they modified the Moss-Racusin abstract such that it appeared that no gender bias was actually found in the study. So everything was the same except they modified the abstract such that it appeared the result was no gender bias was found. Okay. Okay. Results, please. You want me to drum roll? Drum roll, please. The results of this study, Dan, were that suddenly male faculty reviewed the abstract much more favorably than females did. Okay, well, now we've got bias. And so there you go, Dan. This was sort of the the smoking gun here, I guess, is as soon as the results were changed, suddenly the male science faculty were like, yeah, this is a pretty solid study. Yeah, it's I not think that we just great. don't like studies or I we're believe more critical this. about things. Yeah, so um, I don't know. I guess this really struck me. Well, Josh, as a science faculty member, understanding the reaction of other science faculty members to other research. I'm just not sure I believe this paper. <laughs> Was that triple meta? And now we're going right, to do a study on how if there's gender bias in papers about gender bias. In the podcast about community. About gender yeah. bias. Um, so, you know, Dan, I, this, this led me to do a lot of thinking. And, you know, one of the things that made me think about is, you know, there very much is mounting evidence of growing numbers of studies that are indicating across the board that gender bias is a very real thing in science. And so, you know, I guess what it made me think about was what this paper highlights is that in the face of this overwhelming evidence, we have people who are looking at this evidence and just saying, you know what, I don't believe it. Doesn't seem, doesn't seem true to me. And so it made me think about things like the climate change deniers or the anti-vaccine movement, right? And I guarantee that there are scores of male science faculty, you know, who scoff at people who deny climate change or think vaccines cause autism, 
who simultaneously will come across evidence of gender bias and say, you know what? I don't buy it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to me, a, a real concern is, I mean, that is certainly an inconsistent view to, to look at the research and, and I'd be interested to hear why they thought the study was flawed. It'd be fascinating because it seems like such a simple, uh, setup basically it's the same person with a different name but you know i would i would ask you what are we going to do about it if there is this problem we would want to look for solutions right but if the very people who could be part of that solution and pushing for that change are are kind of stonewalling and say no it's not a problem like how how do you make it better yeah and dan that is exactly why this study is important and that is for there to be change, first we have to actually admit that there is a problem. There's a need to make change, right? And it's exactly what you said, Dan. If you look at people in leadership positions who are in positions to make changes in the scientific community, still to this day, overwhelmingly, those populations are men. They are in the group that studies like this are showing more often than not deny that gender bias is even an issue at all. Right, And so that's where I think it makes it even more imperative that things like this, studies like these, are constantly brought up, that we're discussing them you know, when we can, how we can, uh, as loud as we can, because the only way to have change is to get the people in charge to actually admit that there is an issue. Yeah, there's, there's still the inherent problem. I mean, you said that in the original non-meta study, women also... Uh, gave less favorable ratings to the woman's resume. So clearly there are some things that we need to do generally in the system. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. The To start that process, you've got to get people to agree that there is a problem. Yeah. And, and you know, Dan, it's sort of, you know, as I thought about it and, you know, looked at the range of studies out there showing how systemic this problem is, you can see how, you know, as a female in science, it would be, a lot of these things would compound, right? You know, even if there's small levels of bias at each stage of the game, right? Let's imagine you're a female undergraduate, right? You're experiencing, you're in this culture where there's some bias that exists. Maybe it's a little bit harder for you to get into the graduate program of your choice. And then once you get there, it's a little bit harder for you to get into the lab that you want to get into or to get that technician position that sets you up to be competitive for graduate school. And then maybe it's a little bit harder for you to get published in that top tier journal, a little bit harder to get that faculty job. And there actually are um, studies out there that show the way men and women are viewed differently in faculty interviews. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then maybe it's even a little bit harder for you to get tenure right? Once you get there. And so all of these things really, really add up. And we haven't even scratched the surface on the inequality of pay, right? So there are all these factors that over time, over the course of a career, really form these fairly significant hurdles um, that women have to jump over that men don't. Yeah, I'd be interested to know if any of our listeners have experienced this, you know, in in subtle ways or in overt ways. Um what is this? What is it like to do these applications to to try to take these opportunities and to get kind of a I don't know uh, the cold not the cold shoulder but but maybe a dismissal or you are not given the chance to even you know, make your case for why you should be the person selected. Yeah, I think one thing that would be challenging about this is on an individual to individual basis, it's probably hard to see it 
actually, because, you know, I'm thinking about what if there was a real life scenario um, that mimicked this, um, you know, this resume study, right? Let's say you're a male or a female who sends in your resume and you get an offer or you don't, right? You don't know. Yeah. Like you can't just, it's confirmation not confirmation bias. If you get it, then it's something. If you send out 300 and you get nothing, then you have no idea. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I assume that I am a, a fully unbiased person. Um, I would have been interested to get this and be part of the sample and see what kind of a jerk I am. Is there, is there any way for me to, to know that I'm a terrible biased well, yes, individual? Dan. Actually, there is. If, if you are interested in finding out I mean, I how am. biased when, if you, you had actually been are. sent this, you don't know how you would have responded. I mean, because, because you didn't see both resumes and, and you would have just gotten it and you would have responded to whether they were a good person and you would have been biased and you wouldn't have known it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm glad you said that because that, that does bring up one thing that I wanted to mention. And that is what I don't mean to do, um, even though I very much believe that there are changes that need to be made in the science community and that gender bias does exist. What I'm not saying is that there is a legion of evil male scientists out there who uh, consciously are trying to hold women back, right? There, there's actually another side of research on implicit bias, right? The biases that just innately are inside of us. Not to mention looking at the study in question about the resumes, the female faculty members were just as likely as the male faculty members to carry this bias. And so one thing that I found useful and actually informative is Harvard has this project they call Project Implicit. And we'll post the link in the show notes uh, and on the website. It is not Project Illicit. Don't go to that website. (laughs) No, please avoid that website. But Project Implicit, what you can do is you can actually take a series, they have a series of of online tests that you can do that will indicate the level of implicit bias you have. And what's interesting is they have- I haven't studied for these tests. (laughs) And you probably shouldn't. Okay. Uh, But there's a range of tests that range, not just gender bias, but uh, racial bias, age bias, body type bias there they have dozens of different different tests and it's very very fascinating so i would encourage all of our listeners and you dan to go out there and just see uh, how big of a jerk you actually are i mean i i I know i'm going to take these tests and i will be terrible and i think you know we all believe that we are uh, good human beings and and i i understand science and i love science and i know scientifically that any bias i might have is silly but that doesn't mean that i'm not making a a snap implicit judgment. Yeah. And you know, the goal here is not to say, well, I just want to be an unbiased person because that's not realistic. But what we are saying is to be aware of our own biases, to be self-aware enough to know that we are biased can help us as human beings to overcome some of those and set up a system that bypasses your own bias rather than just accepting. Yeah, but I'm going to be this way. Sorry. You know, Dan, I teach students an introductory biostatistics um, lesson. And one of the things we cover at the very beginning, our need for statistics in a lot of ways are to overcome um, as humans our own, um, I guess, deficiencies in the ways we yeah. think about information. And one of the things that I always say um, in, that, in that workshop is when presented with data that challenges our assumptions, we question the validity of the data, not the validity of our assumptions. So in another way, said another way, when we're presented with data that challenges our worldview, we always question the validity of the new data and not the validity of the worldview that we had. Yeah, I, I've heard it said another way. If you don't, if you're not comfortable with the terrain, you argue about the map, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you, you see that in organizations. Yeah, like you absolutely. start, you start bickering about 
the totally unimportant side pieces of the solution when the real problem is is left alone basically yeah that's right well i think it's important everybody go out there we'll we'll post links to uh, both of these studies uh, take a look and and let us know what you think if you've got some comments uh, or your own personal experiences with with bias in the sciences we'd yeah. love to hear about that we'll share your story on the show um on to the etymology puzzle are you ready sir i am ready let's hear it okay the clue last week was insects in this order have four wings that are covered in fish scales I, you may not be able to name the order. Can you name the type of insect that has four wings covered in fish scales? I'm thinking like a like a dragonfly. Yeah, they've got the clearish wings. Oh, think think bigger. Think bigger wings. Bigger. Butterflies and moths. And it is the order Lepidoptera. Lepidoptera. Have you heard of Lepidoptera? I have heard of okay. Lepidoptera. Um, so... This includes butterflies and moths, and it was named in 1735 by none other than Carolus Linnaeus, your buddy, the uh, binomial nomenclature guy that they make you learn about. Mm-hmm. In That's right. Have I heard of that guy for a while? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it comes from Greek, lepido, which means fish scales, and pteron, P-T-E-R-O-N. Pay attention to that, because I'm going to make another clue that starts P-T later in the, in the podcast. Um, that Maybe. means wing or feather. So fish scales... I don't know if you've ever touched a butterfly wing, like it rubs off that powdery stuff. I've touched quite a few fish. I'm a fisherman. Okay, well, <laughs> if you touch a butterfly wing, it will rub off some powdery stuff, and these are these little microscopic scales on their wings. So he must have had a something close to a microscope in 1735. Very cool, very cool. Are you ready for a frightful clue for next week? Etymology Halloween edition. Here we go. Okay. Though it may be beautifully decorated, don't lie down in this ancient limestone box. It will eat your flesh and leave only bones. I'll read it again. Though it may be beautifully decorated, don't lie down in this ancient limestone box. It will eat your flesh and leave only bones. So I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find the literal frightening meaning of that science word, a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. I'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the Lucky Puzzler an Amazon gift card. That was a scary one. A frightening Amazon gift card. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed today's episode and today's beer and today's topics. Um, it occurred to me while we were having this conversation that we should be really worried about hipsters right now. Why is that, Daniel? I mean, they, they love black coffee, mm. hoppy beers. I suspect they, they will eventually try to murder us all. <laughs> So watch out for your hipsters. Local uh, hipsters, they've got the Dan, beard. I think I think you have an implicit bias against hipsters. That could be true because I am one. <laughs> if you have a question or a topic that you would like to hear discussed on the show, you can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, or send us a tweet at hellophd, or you can connect with us on the Facebook page. If you love the show, tell a friend and have them join in the conversation as well. Dan, it's been great. Uh, we will see you next week. We'll see you next week. If you dare... You don't really think hipsters are gonna, like, murder us and eat us, do you? Maybe they're like zombies. I've noticed some Machiavellian tendencies and narcissism and everyday sadism. They drink things before they're cool. <laughs> Ha 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 